Good morning and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Um, Christ Central, I just want to thank you for being patient with our virtual services uh, for the past two Sundays and today. We did that to help slow the spread of COVID, not only in our own church, but also in our community. And I really miss uh, worshiping with you all in person. And I'm just so grateful that starting next Sunday, we'll be resuming our in-person worship services. Now, February is our annual missions month, and this year, we're going to focus on church planting. So the theme of this year's missions month will be advancing the gospel by multiplying churches. One of the most strategic ways that we can advance the gospel is by planting churches that preach the gospel clearly and embody the gospel beautifully. And during Church Planting Month, uh, church planting month uh, we're going to hear from guest preachers who have experience in church planting. We will hear from Pastor Moses, who is currently planting a church. We'll hear from Pastor Walter, who has planted a church. And we'll also hear from Pastor Peter, who will plant a church. And we'll also hear from Dr. Robert Kim, who is a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, and he teaches on church planting. And we're also going to get to hear uh, some great stories from people who came to faith in Jesus and were saved through church plants. That should be amazing and so very encouraging. As we as a church prepare to plant a daughter church in Tyson's, I'm praying that God will use Church Planting Month uh, to encourage us and to give us a bigger kingdom vision for church planting and a deeper burden to see lost people come to faith in Jesus, the, the Savior and the friend of sinners. And on the last Sunday of February, we're also going to take up a love offering to support the church plant in Tyson. So please prayerfully consider giving to that effort. So we're studying the book of Acts, and the goal of this study is for us to learn what it means to be the church as we study the early church in the book of Acts. And the title of today's sermon is Fighting for the Gospel, but Losing for Love. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 35. Now, by this time in the book of Acts, the gospel is being preached to both Jews and Gentiles. And massive numbers of Gentiles were believing the gospel, becoming Christians, and they were entering into the church. And that was a great and wonderful thing. But it also caused a big problem in the church. Today, we're going to talk about what that problem was, how that problem was resolved, and the lessons that we can learn today from this situation in Acts chapter 15. So people of God, this is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? Acts 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the elders were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers." And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that, God, all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders who were gathered together uh, were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Barnabas, with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are at the, were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ." We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by, the word, by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. That was a long passage. Uh, here's the outline for today's sermon. First, the controversy that threatened the gospel. Second, 
the fight for the gospel, and third, the concessions of love. Now, the early church had, had made several huge breakthroughs so far. Initially, the early church was entirely Jewish, and they only preached the gospel to other Jews. But through the Apostle Peter's vision and his experience with Cornelius, the God-fearing Gentile, the early church came to realize that the gospel was, was for both Jews and Gentiles. And this was a huge and revolutionary breakthrough for the early church. And the early church was relatively accepting of the Gentiles that were being converted to Christianity. That's because they were God-fearing Gentiles, meaning that they were Gentiles who had already converted to Judaism. They had been circumcised. They had embraced Jewish theology. They were seeking, uh, seeking to live according to Jewish laws and customs. And they attended Jewish synagogue regularly. And they heard the gospel when Paul and Barnabas preached at the synagogues. So the early church was relatively okay with accepting these God-fearing Gentiles into the church and having fellowship with them because these God-fearing Gentiles had already adopted and assimilated into Jewish culture. In other words, these were Gentiles who were culturally Jewish, as many of us who were ethnically Korean or culturally American. These God-fearing Gentiles obeyed all the laws of the Old Testament, including the ceremonial laws. And keeping the ceremonial laws was what made one really culturally Jewish because the ceremonial laws told you what you could eat, what you could not eat, what you could wear, what you could not wear, and things of that nature. So the presence of these God-fearing Gentiles wasn't too disruptive in the life of the early church because everyone in the church, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, they were culturally Jewish. So even though the church was becoming more and more multi-ethnic with both Jews and Gentiles, but the church was still monocultural. It was still culturally Jewish because even the Gentiles in the church had adopted and assimilated into Jewish culture. But something very different was happening now, and it was disturbing the church. Paul and Barnabas started to preach the gospel outside of the synagogues. And they were preaching to Gentiles who had no association with Judaism. They were preaching to pagan Gentiles. And these pagan Gentiles were now believing the gospel. They were becoming Christians, and they were entering into the church. And these pagan Gentiles were very different from the God-fearing Gentiles because they had not converted to Judaism, they were not circumcised, but most importantly, they did not live by Jewish culture and customs. These pagan Gentiles were retaining their native ethnic and cultural identities. They didn't abandon their culture and their customs, and they were not converting to Judaism. In other words, they were becoming Christians and joining the church without becoming Jews and without adopting and assimilating into Jewish culture. Now, the cultural difference between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians was very noticeable. For example, while the Jewish Christians still only ate clean foods, these formerly pagan Gentile Christians were eating everything that they used to eat before they became Christians, including the food that Jewish Christians thought were unclean. 
They kept eating the food that they ate before they became Christians because to them, none of their food was unclean. So for example, if a Korean were to become a Christian at that time, he would continue to eat pork belly. One, because it's delicious. And two, because it's his cultural food. And there's nothing unclean about pork belly in Korean culture. But eating pork would have been offensive to Jewish Christians because they still believed pork was unclean according to the ceremonial laws. So now there were big cultural differences between Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians who never converted to Judaism. And many of the Gentile cultural practices were highly offensive to the Jewish Christians, and it made it difficult for Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to get along in the church, especially to eat together, to have common fellowship meals together. And many of the Jewish Christians did not like this at all. They didn't like these bad Gentile Christians who were not assimilating into the Jewish culture. They liked the good Gentiles. You know, the God-fearing Gentiles, because they acted like Jews. And so, some Jewish teachers began to teach, according to verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And in verse 5, they further taught, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentile Christians, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. These Jewish teachers were known as Judaizers. They were Pharisees who had become Christians, but they were still zealous for the law of Moses and for Jewish culture. They taught that if Gentiles wanted to become Christians, then in addition to believing in Jesus, in addition to being baptized in his name, they also needed to be circumcised and to start obeying the law of Moses if they wanted to be saved. In other words, they taught that for a Gentile to become a Christian, they also had to become a Jew. They had to be circumcised and they had to obey all the laws and customs of Moses if they wanted to be saved. They were teaching that faith in Christ was not enough to save them. If they truly and fully wanted to be saved, then they also had to be circumcised and they had to start obeying all the laws of Moses, especially the ceremonial laws. They demanded that the new Gentile Christians become Jews. They demanded that the new Gentile Christians abandon their native culture, abandon their native customs, and adopt Jewish culture and customs, and they made that a requirement for salvation. Now, this teaching obviously infuriated the Apostle Paul and Barnabas because they were the ones that were preaching the gospel to pagan Gentiles and they had seen massive numbers of pagan Gentiles come to faith in Christ and come into the church of Christ. And now these Judaizers were threatening to upset the faith of the Gentiles in Christ, telling them that they're not truly saved unless they become Jews. So Paul and Barnabas fiercely objected to the teaching of the Judaizers, which distorted the gospel, and they had huge arguments and debates with them. In fact, Paul's letter to the Galatians was his intense and sustained refutation of the false and gospel-distorting teaching of the Judaizers. Paul even said this, For those who distort the gospel, let them be accursed. If you, want, if you ever want to see the angry side of Paul, read the letter to the Galatians. It's pretty intense. 
So the Judaizers basically taught this. Not all Jewish persons were Christians, but all Christians must be Jewish. But Paul taught that the gospel is for every culture and that a person does not have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Paul taught that Gentiles could still retain their native, ethnic, and cultural identities and still be Christians. So that was a controversy that threatened to destroy the gospel because the Judaizers were teaching that Gentiles had to become Jews in order to become Christians in order to be saved. Next, let's consider how they fought for the gospel. And so in light of this controversial teaching of the Judaizers, the church convened a large council of apostles and elders to meet in Jerusalem to deal with this very matter. Verse 5 says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, again, that is the Gentile Christians, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the critical question was this, Is that true or false? Were the Judaizers right? Do Gentile Christians need to become Jews? Do they need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses in order to be saved? Or are Gentile Christians saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from circumcision and apart from obeying the law of Moses? That was the critical question that this council convened to discuss and to deliberate. Now, the apostle Peter was at this council, and after much discussion and debate, he stood up and spoke on this issue. And he pointed out three facts. First, in verse 7, he said that God chose for the Gentiles to hear the gospel from his own mouth and to believe. Peter was now referring to his encounter with Cornelius. The vision of the clean and unclean animals uh, coming down on a sheet from heaven that Peter saw. God telling Peter uh, to no longer call unclean those that God has made clean. The messengers that were sent from uh, Cornelius and the Holy Spirit telling Peter to go with them and to preach the gospel to them. All of that was evidence and proof that God wanted the Gentiles to hear the gospel. Second, in verse 8, he said that the Gentiles had also received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews. To receive the Holy Spirit means that you're saved, that God has entered into your life, and that you have become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And since the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, they were saved. God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but he gave the Holy Spirit to both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And third, in verse 9, Peter said that God cleanses the heart through faith and not by obedience to the ceremonial laws. In fact, even the Jews themselves were not cleansed through their obedience to uh, the ceremonial laws. Peter said, how dare we put a yoke on them that we, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. We weren't able to cleanse ourselves through obedience to the ceremonial laws. How then can we do that to the Gentiles? So you see, all hearts are cleansed by faith, both Jewish hearts and Gentile hearts. No one is ever cleansed by the law, not Jew or Gentile. And so, the Apostle Peter made his conclusion in verse 11, where he says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
Salvation is through the grace of the Lord Jesus, and that is true for both Jews and Gentiles. Salvation is not through the obedience, through obedience to the laws of Moses. Salvation is through the grace of our Lord Jesus. Here then, friends, is the truth of the gospel. We are saved through grace in faith, uh, through grace, by, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. The gospel says that we don't have to do anything in order to be saved. The gospel says that we don't have to get circumcised or to obey the law of Moses to be saved. The gospel says that we don't have to do good works like giving to the poor or fighting for injustice to be saved. You see, Jesus came to save the selfish and the cowardly. The gospel says that we don't have to do works of piety like praying and re, uh, fasting and reading the Bible to be saved because Jesus came to save the impious and the irreligious. The gospel says that we don't have to be good and godly and overcome all of our sins, lusts, and struggles and addictions to be saved because Jesus came to save the ungodly, the sinful, the broken, the addicted, and the messy. And the gospel says that we don't have to change and become better people to be saved. Jesus came to save those that the world had given up on. The gospel says that we don't have to become successful, respected, popular, or wealthy to be saved. Jesus came to save losers, misfits, and failures. The gospel says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So what do you need to do in order to be saved? Humbly confess that you're a lost sinner and call upon Jesus to save you, and he will save you. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Salvation is through the grace of the Lord Jesus and not through your goodness or your good works. Jesus by his death and resurrection, did everything that needed to, be, to, needed to be done for our salvation. And he did it all because of his great love for us. And now, all we have to do is believe. All we have to do is receive by faith the gift of salvation from the Lord Jesus. You see, salvation is not something that you can work for or earn or buy. Salvation is something that you receive freely without any cost as a gift from the Lord Jesus. Your salvation is free to you, but it was very expensive to Jesus because it cost Jesus his life to save you. But it was a cost that Jesus was glad to pay because that's how much he loves you. Now, you might be wondering why Christians no longer have to obey the ceremonial laws found in Leviticus. That's because all the ceremonial laws foreshadowed and pointed ahead to Jesus and to the cleansing and redeeming work that he would accomplish for his people through his death and resurrection. So all the ceremonial laws like that, that we find in the book of Levit Leviticus have all been fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why New Testament Christians do not have to obey any of the ceremonial laws like offering animal sacrifices for guilt, uh, for sin, or eating only clean foods and things like that. Now, if a Jewish Christian wanted to keep obeying some of the ceremonial laws, like the laws that regulated their diet, that was fine. But of course, there were some ceremonial laws that they dare not obey. 
They dare not obey the, the, the command to offer an animal as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. For to do that would, to, would be to declare that the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross was insufficient, and that would be blasphemy. But if they wanted to keep obeying the ceremonial laws that uh, regulated their diet, then they were free to do so. But from now on, it was only a cultural practice and done out of personal preference, and it was not binding on the consciences of New Testament believers. So the council in Jerusalem contended and fought for the gospel, and they officially concluded and declared that salvation is through the grace of the Lord Jesus apart from the works of the law. But the council didn't just fight for the gospel. They also made concessions of love for the sake of the unity and the fellowship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the same church. So we move on to the third point here. So the judgment of the council is seen in verse 19, where the apostle James said, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So they officially and emphatically rejected the teaching of the Judaizers, which troubled the Gentiles who turned to God. The Gentiles, like the Jews, are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, and they do not need to be circumcised, and they do not need to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. So the council settled the controversy, and the gospel was protected from the corrupt teaching of the Judaizers. So in the words of the Protestant Reformation, Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. But the council didn't just want to protect the truth of the gospel. They also wanted to protect the unity of the church. So they wrote this pastoral letter to all the churches. And in that letter, they gave recommendations that would help Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians live together in peace and harmony and to maintain the unity of the church. They wanted the Gentile Christians to respect the consciences of the Jewish Christians who had a hard time letting go of the ceremonial laws because according to verse 21, Moses was still being read and proclaimed every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so the council asked the Gentile Christians to refrain from four things that were especially offensive to Jewish Christians. And those recommendations are found in verse 29. Now, these four things uh, are, are found in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18, and they were all ceremonial laws regarding food and marriage. Basically, they recommended four things. One, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Two, don't eat bloody meat. Three, don't eat animals that were strangled. And four, don't marry close relatives. Now, in the text, you read the word sexual morality and, and, and the Greek word is porneia. But that word, in, in this context, does not refer to like sexual morality, like adultery or to sex outside of marriage. It's referring to irregular marriages between people who are close relatives, blood relatives, which the ceremonial laws forbade. Now, none of these things are sinful or wrong for the Gentiles or for Gentile Christians, since the Gentile Christians were not obligated to obey any of the ceremonial laws, especially when it came to what they could eat or not eat. Technically and morally, they could eat whatever they wanted. They could eat all the foods that they were used to eating from their culture before they became Christians. 
But some of the food that the Gentile Christians were eating was very offensive to the Jew, uh, Jewish Christians and they were, because they were still steeped in the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And so, for the sake of the consciences of the Jewish Christians and out of love for their Jewish brothers and sisters, so that Jews and Gentiles can eat together and have common fellowship meals together where Jewish Christians were not offended or grieved, the council encouraged the Gentile Christians to voluntarily refrain from these four things. You see, Gentile Christians had every right to eat whatever they wanted. But out of love for their Jewish brothers and sisters, they were asked to make these concessions for the sake of the consciences of Jewish Christians and for the sake of the unity and the fellowship between Jewish and Gentile Christians in the same church, the council asked Gentile believers to make these concessions out of love. In his commentary on the book of Acts, John Stott said this, the abstinence here recommended must be understood not as an essential Christian duty, but as a concession to the consciences of others, of the Jewish converts who still regarded such food as unlawful and abominable in the sight of God. Now at this moment, we need to pause uh, for a moment and ask a very important question. Was this letter from the council descriptive or prescriptive? Did it just describe what the council wanted churches at that time in church history to do? Or was it prescriptive? And is this letter still relevant and binding for all churches today? Well, the answer is both. It is both descriptive and prescriptive. First, the particulars of the letter are descriptive. The recommendation to refrain from certain foods because they would uh, offend Jewish Christians is largely irrelevant today. So, if you're a Korean and you like to eat blood sausages, then you're free to do so in Christ. Uh, refraining from eating bloody meat or, or, or pork belly is not a concession that you have to make today since nobody is offended by eating a food like that, at least for religious reasons. So the concessions listed in this pastoral letter were descriptive. It was written for Gentile Christians who were in fellowship with Jewish Christians who were still stuck on the ceremonial laws, especially when it came to diet and marriage. But second, the principle of the letter is prescriptive. And here's the principle. That Christians, out of love, ought to be willing to refrain from certain things that are good and lawful to them, but it may offend and grieve their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So out of love, and for the sake of the unity and peace of the church, Christians ought to be willing to refrain from certain activities if it will offend and grieve other Christians. Okay, time for some real talk. As I apply this very practically to the life of our church. It is not sinful or moral to drink alcohol or to smoke cigars, cigarettes, or pipes. There is nothing wrong with those activities as long as you don't abuse them and as you enjoy them in moderation and according to the laws of the land. I personally enjoy drinking and smoking, and there are many people in our church who enjoy drinking and smoking, again, in moderation with a grateful heart to the glory of God. But... There are people in our church family who do not drink and smoke. And they are offended and grieved when they see other Christians drinking and smoking. 
Some believe that it is sinful and immoral to drink and smoke. Now, some may not believe that it's sinful or immoral, but they believe it's unwise and dangerous. Or some people don't uh, drink and smoke for health reasons or for some other personal reason. But here's the bottom line. There are precious brothers and sisters in our own church family who are offended and grieved when they see other Christians drinking and smoking. So here's the question, Christ Central. What are we to do? What are we going to do as we try to live together as one church family? Let me tell you first what we should not do. For those of you who have no problem with drinking and smoking, you should not drink and smoke in front of those people who do get offended and grieved uh, by those things. Your attitude should not be, it's not a sin. They're just being legalistic. So I don't care what they think. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to drink and uh, smoke in front of them whether they like it or not. I don't care if it offends them. I'm going to do what I do because I'm free in Christ to do so. And to be very honest, when I was younger, I used to have that very attitude. In fact, I used to enjoy drinking and smoking in front of people who thought it was offensive because I just wanted to let them know they're being legalistic and they need to grow up in Christ. Very mature, very self-righteous attitude I used to have. Rather, this is what we should do. If you know that you're about to have a meal with someone who is offended and greed by drinking, then do you realize that you have the right to refrain from drinking beer or, or, or wine in their presence? So for the sake of their conscience, for the sake of love, for the sake of not offending them, for the sake of both of you enjoying the meal together with neither person being offended or grieved, you can exercise your right to not order a beer and order Diet Coke instead. This is making a concession of love for the sake of the other, for the sake of the unity and the peace of our fellowship. Now, if you're having dinner with people who have no problem with drinking, then you're free in Christ to order that cocktail or that beer or that glass of wine, and you can enjoy it with your meal. Or if you're at a fire pit with people who can enjoy uh, smoking a cigar or sipping on bourbon or scotch, then you're free to do that as well. Uh, sip and puff away to the glory of God with a grateful heart. But if you know that you're in the presence of a brother or sister who is offended and grieved by those things, whatever their reasons may be, then you can make a concession of love. And you can joyfully refrain from exercising your right to drink and smoke for the sake of your brother and sister in Christ. Consider this exhortation from the Apostle Paul. He was writing to those whose consciences allowed them to eat and drink whatever they wanted. He was addressing the Gentile believers and how they ought to behave toward Jewish believers in the church who were offended and grieved by some of the things that these Gentile Christians were eating and drinking. And the Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking or smoking, but of righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. God is so good, so wise, and so loving. So what, what can we learn from the early church, Christ Central? I just want to highlight two things. First, we must fight for the gospel. The temptation for people to distort the gospel and to add requirements for people to be saved or to know that they're truly saved will always be there. When people teach or imply that you have to believe in Jesus and do something else, no matter how good it is, or to be more loved and more blessed by God, that we need to refute that false teaching and protect the truth and the purity of the gospel, which says that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more or to bless us more, because if we are in Christ, we are already fully loved and fully blessed and fully saved. There is nothing we need to do in order to be saved or to be sure that God loves us. God loves us because of Christ, not because we're so prayerful or because we're so holy or because of anything that we do. Second, and this is, I think, more important, we must be willing to lose and to make concessions for the sake of love, for the sake of the unity and the peace of the church. For the sake of others and for the sake of the unity and peace of our church, would you be willing to make concessions? Would you be willing to give up your personal preferences for the sake of the peace and unity of the church? Out of love for others, would you refrain from speech or activities that can offend or grieve others? Let's think about the impact of our words and our actions, and let's resolve by the grace of God to only say and only do those things that edify and build up and to refrain from activities that discourage and tear down. Jesus, who loved us and laid down his life for us, calls us to lay down our rights at times and to seek the interests of others before our own. And in this way, we will resemble the early church as we love one another in this way. I know that this will both honor Christ and please Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for your word, Lord Jesus. And I pray that as our church believes and internalizes uh, the truths that we found in Acts chapter 15, that it would shape how we do life and ministry together as a church. That we would be a church that would valiantly fight for the truth of the gospel and yet also humbly make concessions for the sake of love the sake of unity, for the sake of peace in the church. Oh God, by your spirit, would you make this so in our church?